Sing that stanza one more time. What a what wonderful, wonderful man. Stand up with me, would you? Let's worship him. Thank you, Lord. What a wonderful Savior. Oh, yes, he is. How Thank majestic, you, Lord. How majestic your tell you men that David C. is going to be here Saturday morning 7.30 breakfast and coffee and donuts uh, that's continental breakfast alright and good men's meeting going to be covering a man and his morals that sounds serious yeah alright so finding the rock where are you raise your hand Earl hello back there we're praying for you and uh, all of you going through finding the rock God bless you as you go out and don't forget, everybody, spring forward this Saturday night. So don't come walking in at 10 o'clock to the early service. All right? Okay, how many of you are ready to go through Second Peter tonight? Oh, this is really, really strong tonight. We're going to pray over it. And uh, God bless Finding the Rock. Give them a hand as they go out. Good folks. Why do we teach books like this? We teach books like this because God gave us every word. He gave us every word. And we are built up by the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Not just a few pet verses, but the whole thing. Tonight we're going to really get into the Word of God. And I want us to pray together. Um, we're going to go almost where angels fear to tread. And uh, just uh, strong deep stuff that Simon Peter, the former old crusty fisherman, brought forth such powerful God-given revelation. So let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us from your word. Thank you for opening our eyes to see, building our faith in the word of God. We thank you for it, Lord. Now speak to us tonight. We ask that the great teacher of the church, the Holy Spirit of God, would illuminate our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Let me take you through um, chapter 2, the first half of chapter 2 tonight. And um, now if you haven't been here the last couple of times, the first couple of uh, messages on Second Peter, you can grab the notes back there. Or you can grab the CDs, and I would because this is really, really powerful. We're going to go from Second Peter to Jude. They are almost brother and sister. They're very similar, and uh, they're written for similar reasons. So it's going to be a great, great series, Second Peter through Jude. And let's look now. Once Peter has established faith's convictions, which he did in the first chapter, the convictions of faith, 
He's now going to forge ahead to deal with those who are denying the faith. Apostates. People who were walking away from, uh, from him. Okay? Now he'll deal first with the doctrine of the heretics. Then with the doom of the heretics. And finally with the deeds of the heretics. Heretics. Now he begins first with the lying message within the doctrine of the heretics. And here's what he says, but there were also, now he's reaching back and saying, here's what happened in the past. There were false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce, what everybody? Destructive heresies. Even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing what on themselves? Swift destruction. Boy, I'll tell you, that's scary just to read it, isn't it? Uh, it puts the fear of the Lord in you. Now, the word for false prophets, what does it mean? It points to one who openly proclaims a lying message that he claims to have received from God. A false prophet brings a lying message. They are liars. Okay? Now, down through the ages, God's men have frequently been plagued by Satan's counterfeits. Peter is hearkening back to the many instances recorded in Scripture where God's men dealt with false prophets. Those that were bringing lying messages to who? They didn't bring them to the world necessarily, brought them to God's people. Brought lying messages to God's beloved, the church, the Old Testament people of God, and now in our day, the New Testament people of God. So their target was God's people. Jeremiah, for instance, look what he complained. The prophets speak falsely. And here's the bad part. My people love it so. What a word. My people love to be lied to. They don't want the truth. Now, Isaiah described the desperate condition of the Israelites on the eve of the Assyrian invasion, right before they were taken into captivity. And here's what he says. This is a rebellious people. Lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord. And they say to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, but speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Because, you know, the truth is not always easy. Truth is hard on you sometimes. The further you are away from God, the harder it is. So, uh, he says, we, we want to hear smooth things. We don't want to hear the truth. And I believe that's where our culture is today. Major league. Don't want to hear the truth. G give us smooth things. Okay? That's what we want to hear. Now, Paul the Apostle warned that in the last days, now he's talking about New Testament people, professing believers would do the very same thing. For the time will come, Paul predicted, when people will not put up with sound doctrine. What are we teaching here right now? Sound doctrine. Do you know that if I've taught in churches that I could think of right now, if they let me in to teach, and I taught what I always teach, they would never have me back. You know why? They want smooth things. They don't want truthful things. Now he goes on and says, instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Now notice, it's not the teachers coming to them. They're looking around for the teachers they want. And what are they looking for? They're looking for teachers that will 
itch their ears. That is, tell them smooth things. Don't tell me the truth. Don't talk to me about that blood, that cross, that heaven and that hell, and those devils, and Jesus being the only way, and, and judgment. Don't talk to me about that stuff. Sin. Don't say the word sin. We don't talk about sin. We want to build your self-esteem. We want you to feel good about yourself. All right? Now, that's what they're doing today. They're looking for teachers who will scratch the itch. And it's happening all the time. Now, Peter echoes the same conviction. As it happened before, he wrote, there will be false teachers among you. That's where he's going. False teachers are going to come your way. Teaching lies. They will twist the word. They will tell you things about God and the word that are not true. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. What about that? Denying Jesus. Bringing swift destruction on themselves. Destructive heresies is going to be their stock and trade. Now I'm going to ask you as we go into this, are there false teachers around today? Man, you don't have to go far at all. You can flip on the TV and find one about any given time. False teachers. Not teaching the Word of God. They're scratching the itch of people who don't want to hear the truth. Matter of fact, the truth is really on the endangered species list in our day. Now, when I talk about destructive heresies and this kind of thing, I want to I define three important words that I think people wonder about a lot. And here they are. The first one's apostasy. What does it mean when you say apostate people or, or uh, apostasy? They committed apostasy, or those people are apostates. What do you mean? Apostasy is the abandonment of what one once held or believed, particularly sound Bible doctrine. Apostasy. If I was going to go apostate, here's what I would start doing. I don't believe in the blood anymore. I don't think that you've got to go by way of Jesus to be saved. Um... There's no heaven, there's no hell, or, or let's put it, there's no hell. There's heaven, but there's no hell. And God's sure not going to send anybody there. And that Bible of yours is full of errors. And why don't we get smart and face up to it? Use our intellectual brains and, and realize that there's no way that that thing's accurate. It was passed down through so many centuries, and you really can't rely on it. And so therefore, there's no sin you don't need to be forgiven. You just need to like yourself. That's all that really matters. You feel good about you. And, and once, you, once you really wake up and smell the roses, you'll realize that I'm okay and you're okay. This sin stuff, oh, I mean, get rid of that belief. Apostasy. The abandonment of sound Bible doctrine. It's when you walk away from it. Now, what about blasphemy? That's the second word. Blasphemy. Speaking about God with contempt, hatred, or disdain. Blasphemy is the verbal abuse of God. I know what you're thinking. What about the blasphemy uh, of the Holy Spirit? And what about the unforgivable sin? And have I committed it? Because what if I blaspheme? God forgives blasphemy if you repent. But that's what blasphemy is. And i got to tell you, folks, I'm really, 
Uh, I'm amazed regularly at what's going on in our culture, the way people look right up towards heaven and blaspheme God. Just say things that are filled with hatred and disdain. Verbal abuse of God, that's blasphemy. And what about heresy? What's heresy? That's the third word. Heresy is the act of laying error alongside truth with the intent to deceive. See, in heresy, there's always some truth. You're not going to believe a lie unless it's got some truth in it. So a heretic is somebody who lays truth alongside deception. You hear, you know, they, they may talk about Jesus Christ. They may talk about God. They may talk about heaven. They may say some right things. But laying truth out, they then lay deception alongside it. And they use the truth to lure you into deception. That's the heretic. And that's heresy. And uh, so any really good false teacher has got some good right things to say. But then they insert the deception. And right when you think, oh, this person sounds great, they bring in the deception and they lure you in with truth. Now, Peter said that the heretics teaching these heresies would ra actually reach the place of denying the sovereign Lord. This is in our day. He's talking about the New Testament church. They'll deny the Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction, destruction on themselves. And many of these damnable heresies are in the world today. Let me just name a few. Liberal theology, oh man, it's everywhere. Liberal theology. It denies every cardinal doctrine of Scripture, reducing Jesus to the level of a well-meaning teacher who, because of his advanced thinking and popularity, brought about his own martyrdom, but he really wasn't the Son of God. He was just a good guy like a lot of other good world religious leaders. He was not unique. He was just one of several. Liberal theology, Jehovah's Witnesses, they deny the Trinity. They deny hell. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the bodily resurrection. It's heresy. But you could go into a Jehovah's Witness meeting, and you're likely going to hear a few things that are true, and then they're going to lay alongside that truth the false doctrine. And it's heresy. Now, here's another one, Mormonism. With the age-old lie, you will be as gods, which is what Satan told Eve in the garden. If you eat the fruit, you're going to be like God. She said, I like that. And that's one of the teachings of Mormonism. You're going to be like a god. If you follow our doctrine, you will be like God. It's a damnable heresy. Can I say it tonight? And the current belief, intolerance, and multiculturalism teaches that there are many ways to God, not just Jesus Christ. This, too is a damnable heresy because there's not many ways to God, folks. You know why? Because only Jesus atoned for your sin. That's it. Now, now stay with me a minute. You say, well, you're being pretty narrow, Pastor Jeff. Jesus said it was a narrow way. Well, 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 surely it can't just be one way. Surely there's other ways to God. Surely God looks at the intent of our heart. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus said, that if you reject me, you're damned already. Now watch that. See, a lot of people, all they know about Jesus is something somebody told them. They've never read the words in red themselves. But this thing of God sees my heart, so it doesn't matter which way I come, as long as I come to God, is a, is a heresy. It's a deception. 
because it matters very much how you come to God. Now, Peter warns that after their destruction uh, will be swift. Their destruction is going to be fast, swift. Now, next, the apostle focuses on the lifestyle of the heresy teacher or the heretic. Look what he says. Many are going to follow their depraved conduct. Now, that has to do with lifestyle. So we could say this. Many people are going to follow their depraved lifestyle. In the next couple of weeks, don't miss the next couple of weeks because I'm, I'm going to be so politically incorrect in the next couple of weeks. Uh, because, because the Bible is. But I'm going to have to talk to you about um, some things that Peter deals with. I can't skip over them. One of them is depraved lifestyles. And they're going to bring the way of truth because of their lifestyle into disrepute. The word depraved comes from a Greek word meaning lascivious. And a lascivious person is somebody who has abandoned all restraint. And they revel. They revel. They're not just involved in indecent behavior, but they revel in indecent behavior. Can we say gay pride marches? Can we say pornography? Can we say lots of things going on in our day where there's not just, not just indecent behavior, but people reveling in it, flaunting it in the face of God? Peter is pointing to how apostate teachers who have abandoned the truth soon endorse the most foul and filthy lifestyles imaginable. Remember I told you this, your theology will dictate your lifestyle. Your theology will decide your lifestyle. If your theology is liberal, unbiblical, then you throw morals to the wind. And because of these people, these heretics who are living uh, immoral lifestyles, the way of truth falls into disrepute. They say they're people of God or standing for God, but their lifestyles bring the true way of truth into disrepute. Folks, the closer you get to Jesus, the more moral you will become. You know why? Because God is a moral God. He's holy. He's a holy God. And so therefore, he's moral. Where do we get our morals? I was talking to an agnostic one time. A, a lady looked right at me and said, I'm agnostic. I, I'm not sure about their... And I said, where did you get your morals? And her face just went blank. Because you see, we are the fingerprint of God. And, and where, did, where did people who, are law, who say they don't even believe in God, where do they get their sense of right and wrong and conscience and good and bad? Where? It, it, it comes from, from God. Now, Peter then focuses on their motives for this heretical teaching. They, they live not only in moral lifestyles, but here's their motive in their greed. Everybody say greed. greed. Uh-oh, now he's meddling, right? Well, he's already been meddling, but now he's going to meddle more. In their greed, these teachers are going to exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Notice, the motive of the heretic, the teacher of heresy, is very often greed. They're out to get your money, honey. 
So they spin tall tales. These false teachers are greedy. They'll weave tall tales, lies, and twist Scripture to get your money. Let me give you an example. In the Middle Ages, you probably know this, but where'd the Protestant Reformation come from? What made Martin Luther so mad that he went and, and pounded those theses into the church door at Wittenberg and began the Protestant Reformation? What did it? What was he angry about? Because he saw the representatives of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages going around from town to town, little, little hamlets and villages in Germany, and selling indulgences. And the indulgence said, you put money. The minute your money clangs into the bottom of this cup, your loved ones are delivered from purgatory. Well, and the Catholic Church got filthy, wealthy from this. Only problem was there is no purgatory. And you can't buy your way out. But this is the way they got rich. What were they doing? Weaving tall. They said, there's a purgatory. And, and, and when you give money to the mother church, then it delivers the soul of your loved one out of purgatory into glory. Martin Luther saw these poor, ignorant peasants dropping their, you know, little mites in, believing that their loved one who had died was now going to be delivered from a semi-torturous condition into glory. And none of it was true. But they got wealthy off of that. And Luther said, that's it, I can't stand it. And he began, launched, or of course God threw him, the Protestant Reformation. But that's what did it. What were they doing? Weaving tall tales to get your money. It was heresy. There's no such thing. Okay? The very thing that infuriated Martin Luther was heretics after the money of the people. Peter says, their destruction slumbers not. It's not sleeping. Their destruction's coming. God's judgment is on their heels. Their downfall is assured. It may appear that they're getting away with it, but in the end, God's wheel of justice will finally roll over them. God's wheel moves slow, but move it does. Peter now opens up his Bible, and he takes his readers back to the past. Here we go. Back to the past. He has three illustrations from the Bible of God dealing with apostasy. Why is he giving us three, three illustrations? Here's what he's saying. He's showing us he did it then, and he's going to do it again. Now, how many of you believe in a God of love? Do you? All right. If you believe in a God of love, then you've got to believe in a God of judgment as well. Okay? Because if you believe he's loving and also that he's holy, then you know that his holiness cannot endure sin and that sin cannot go unpunished. So, he's going to give us three illustrations out of the Bible to show how when apostasy rose up in the past, God took action. And he's wanting us, by seeing these examples, to go, okay, I got the fear of God in me. I'm going to walk in the Word. Look what he says. He's going to begin with the angels. The angels when they sinned. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Now, I want you to think with me tonight. This is very strong. Sin didn't begin on earth with Adam and Eve. 
It began in heaven with Lucifer and his angels. The angels that sinned, Peter says. They sinned. We know that Lucifer was filled with pride, decided he would try to overthrow God, was hurled down to earth, and he was able to draw a third of the heavenly angels with him. And so Peter says the angels that sinned, plural. And they fall into two categories. First, when Satan fell, he apparently dragged down a third of the heavenly host with him. Revelations 12, you can read about that. Jesus himself said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. How do you see that? In his pre-incarnate, eternal state, before he became a babe born in Bethlehem, Jesus was there when Satan was judged. He saw him fall like lightning from heaven. Now, large numbers of these fallen angels are actively engaged today in holding our world in bondage right now. They harbor malice, special malice, towards two sets of people. The Jewish people, you can read about that in these verses I put here, and toward the church. They have malice towards the Jewish people. That's why most anti-Semitism is extremely demonically inspired because the, the fallen angels have vitriol against them and towards the church. They exist in a hierarchical structure with Satan as their head. They're organized. They're organized as principalities, powers, rulers of this world's darkness, and as wicked spirits in high places. They have a hierarchical structure. They're organized with their head being Satan. He's organized. He's brilliant, but he's fallen, and he's defeated. They are of a different order. Listen, they are of a different order than demons, which have a craving to possess human bodies. Remember when Jesus gave the parable about the demon cast out of the person, and he went traveling in dry places and then desired to go back and re-inhabit that body? When you find Jesus' ministry, it was always so much of Jesus' ministry. I think like a quarter of his ministry was casting demons out of human bodies. By the way, if you're saved and washed in the blood, you don't have demons in your body. I just wanted to say that. Well, Pastor Jeff, that's not what I've been taught. Well, you, were, you were taught wrong. You can be oppressed, but not possessed, because that means owned, and you're owned by the Lord. Okay? Now, now watch this. From the ranks of these higher, more powerful angels came a group of angels that had a further fall. Now, y'all are going to have to hang with me. Put on your thinking cap. All right? Came a, a group of angels that had a further fall, one beyond the rebellion against God. Jude chimes in with this very same thing. Listen to Jude, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So you have demon spirits and you have these, this hierarchical structure of fallen angels who are roaming the world. But both Jude and Peter tell us there's another subset of fallen angels that are not roaming. They can't. They're chained. And they are being held for the judgment of the great day. They are different. Okay? 
Now, let me move forward here. Y'all are being very quiet. That's good. So both Peter and Jude mention angels that are right now being held in chains of darkness, awaiting the judgment day. Well, who are they? And what did they do? They're not roaming the earth like the other demon spirits, are they? They're not holding cities in bondage like the principalities, powers, rules of the darkness, spiritual wickedness in high places. No, they're reserved. They're being held in a place of darkness, chained up, waiting for the judgment day. That's what both Peter and Jude said. Now first, both Peter and Jude put their fall in the context of the sin of Sodom. What was the sin of Sodom? We're going to see it next week. Don't miss next week. Most politically incorrect week of the whole series. But look, he puts their fall in the context of the sin of Sodom. The sin of Sodom was what Peter calls going after strange flesh. That's what he says. Many solid Bible scholars believe that this particular group of fallen angels lusted after human women. In pursuit of this unnatural desire, they violated the order of their being. And in consummating their craving, they brought down upon their heads the wrath of God. Let's go on. Peter is pointing to the judgment that overtook these angels who fell not once, but they fell twice. Peter also seems to place this time of profound corruption as during the time of Noah and the judgment of the flood. Look what he says, chapter 2, verse 5, 2 Peter. If he did not, that's God, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. So right there, he's placing what these fallen angels did as during the time before the flood of Noah. The angels that involved themselves in this unimaginable corruption, Peter says, were thrust down to hell. Now the word for hell here comes from the word Tartarus. I always think of tartar sauce when I read that. <laughs> I can't help it. Tartarus, but Tartarus. When you read the Greek language, if, if you read your if you read it in Greek, it would, it, when it says hell, it was translated from the word Tartarus, which is a Greek name for the underworld, especially the abode of the damned. Well, Pastor Jeff, wait a minute. I thought that was the lake of fire. Hang on. Tartarus is not the lake of fire. Gehenna is the lake of fire. And can I inform you tonight that uh, nobody, nothing is in the lake of fire yet. Well, I thought they were all down there roasting. No. No one's in the lake of fire yet. Read Revelations. The first ones to split open the lake of fire to be thrown in there will be the beast and the Antichrist. Until then, right now, it awaits. So where, where do people go who are not saved? Tartarus. Now, unlike the day that they're delivered over the lake of fire, or until the day they're delivered to the lake of fire, these wretched beings, these fallen angels, are currently in detention 
in Tartarus, held by chains of darkness. I didn't say that. Peter said it. Jude said it. Held in chains of darkness in Tartarus. Everybody say to me, this is deep. I know, but it's there. I can't skip over it. Moses describes their invasion, the, the invasion of these fallen angels. He, in, he describes their invasion of the human race in Genesis 6, 1 and 2. Quote, now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, mark that phrase down, underline it, sons of God, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, here's what some argue, and I'm going to throw it out there. Some argue that the phrase, the sons of God, is pointing to the godly line of Seth, and that these sons of God were Sethites, and it's talking about the marriage of the godly lineage to these beautiful daughters of men. But there's a problem with that. Aside from Adam being called a son of God in Luke 3.38, and born-again believers being called sons of God all through the New Testament, angels are called sons of God in every other place where the expression is used in the entire Old Testament. And I've given you a lot of examples there. When the phrase sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it's always referring to angels. These sons of God mentioned in Genesis, as fantastic as it may seem, appear to have been fallen angels taking on human form, just as we find them doing when they appeared to Abraham. So you're sitting there, well, how could they become like a human? We know they did when they came to Abraham, did they not? Abraham said, looked out of his tent one day, here's three men. They appeared to Abraham before Sodom's destruction. And what did they say? We're here to check it out. We're here to see if what we've been told is true. And Abraham ran and, and made something for them, cooked something for them, and these angelic beings ate food. Okay? We're just walking through our Bible here. This is not Jeff. We're walking through our Bible here. Didn't Hebrews say, beware how you treat people lest you entertain an angel unaware? Now watch this. And look what happened. They sat in Abraham's tent, these three men who were angels, and they ate a meal. They walked into Sodom, where the Sodomites clearly thought they were men because they lusted for them. Yet in mere hours... These same beings brought fiery wrath and judgment upon the cities. They warned Lot, you better get out quick. And look what the Bible says, quote, For we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So you got angels walking into Abraham's tent, looking and sounding like men, eating food like men, yet they have the power to step outside the city and bring it to nothing, where today it's buried under the Dead Sea forever. They did it, these same creatures that looked like people. Everybody say, ooh, Pastor Jeff, you're weirding me out here. It's just the Bible. 
Now watch. The offspring of these fallen angels, the offspring of their union with women. The Bible is very clear about it. These unnatural relations brought about the giants we read of in the Old Testament. Genesis 6, 4 and 5. Quote, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. See, that's linking the giants with these unions. And they bore children to them. Those were, Moses says, by the Spirit, the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. But that, that's not a compliment. It says in verse 5, then the Lord saw, then, when, when this, this, these unnatural unions were taking place, these giants were being produced. The Lord then saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wickedness there is talking about moral depravity. This was a totally morally depraved pornographic culture that preceded the flood. The giants Moses mentions are what are known as the Nephilim, what the Bible calls the Nephilim, meaning fallen ones. They were people of huge size, giant size, strength, inventiveness, and evil, iniquity. Their destruction was necessary for the continuation of the human race. The giants were also known in the Bible in Numbers 1333 as Anakim and Rephaim in Deuteronomy. Giants. The antediluvian people, when I say antediluvian, what I mean is those that lived before the flood. Just a fancy word for those who lived before the flood. But it, it's impressive to say it, isn't it? Antediluvian. Go out, go out tonight and say, we learned about the antediluvianites. Now, had been given, the antediluvian people had been given two preachers, Enoch and Noah. Enoch was a prophet. And Jude tells us in verse 14, he warned the antediluvian people of the judgment that was to come. He warned them. He was a preacher. Noah preached for 120 years while he was building the ark. And what did he preach? Judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. And the Bible tells us that, Genesis 6, 3, 1 Peter 1, 20. Now watch. When God saw what was happening between fallen angels and women... He placed a time limit of 120 years on his divine calendar. He said, the hourglass has been turned upside down. I'm going to send judgment, and it's going to be 120 years. During this time, Enoch had a son he named Methuselah, which means when he dies, it shall come. Did you get that? I'm going to say it again. Enoch, a preacher of righteousness, had a son. He named him Methuselah. When he dies, it shall come. That's what the name means. He named him with a prophetic name. God was saying when this man dies, it, the judgment, is coming upon this world. Methuselah was a sign. When the ark was finished, Methuselah died. Methuselah lived to the age of 969 years old. He's the oldest man in the history of the world. Can you imagine living to a 969? Man, when you're 300, you're just starting to date. 
969. You're in no hurry when you got that kind of genetic makeup, right? But watch this. Why did God allow Methuselah to live older than any other man? Mercy. Because when he dies, it shall come. Now watch. When he was 187, he had a, a son. Lamech was born. And he lived another 182 years till Noah was born. So Methuselah was Noah's granddaddy. Okay? Let's do some math. 187 plus 182 equals 369. So Noah was born when Methuselah was 369. The flood came when Noah was 600. So 600 plus 369 is 969. And that's how we know how old Methuselah was when he died. So Scripture confirms that Methuselah died and it came. It's a sign. And God never leaves a generation without a sign. Jesus said, when you see all these signs coming to pass, know that it is near, even at the door. We have multiple signs for the last day return of Christ, but they had a major sign. It was this man. When he dies, it shall come. Genesis 7, 6, And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. The death of Methuselah must have given Noah the text for his final sermon. Don't you imagine? He might have been preaching the funeral. Methuselah is dead. You can hear him saying to these people. And now it's about to come. The flood of which Enoch warned. An ark is ready. There it is. I've built it. I'm done with it. The, the door is open. Run into the ark. Because now he's dead. And it's coming. And not one person came. Not one. When the flood came, Peter and Jude both say that God cast them, these wicked fallen angels, that's when this happened. He cast them down to Tartarus then and delivered them into chains of darkness where they are right now. They're not roaming the earth. They're not possessing people. They're not binding cities. They are reserved in chains waiting for the final judgment. That's where they are right now. And I can't imagine the blackness, the darkness, the horrificness of such a place. But that's where they are, chained. Jude writes, in agreement with Peter, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. When <clears throat> the great white throne judgment happens, or before then, God's going to judge those angels, and they will split the lake of fire wide open. But right now, they're in Tartarus. A horrible prison. Now, as for the human race of that day, Peter writes that God, quote, did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, and he brought in the flood 
on the world of the ungodly. Why is he telling us this? So that you won't think he'll spare us. And anybody not walking with Jesus listening to me right now, by radio or in this place, he's telling us this story about those angels and the ancient world so we will know if you don't obey God and get under his covering and his sacrifice for sin, Peter is saying he didn't spare them and he won't spare you. That's the message. And that's all we can take tonight, right? <laughs> all right, let's stand up together, can we? Look at next week. Uh-oh, the destruction of Sodom and the sin of Balaam. Oh, it's so rich. Don't miss next week. It is so rich and so real. And how many of you are glad that the Lord, by His grace, reached you? Amen. Amen. Now, I can hear some of you thinking, man, I'm going to go home and check out some of what he said. Check it out. I encourage you to do it. The Bible tells us the truth. Father, we just thank you right now for the mercies of God, the covering of your blood, the New Testament ark, who is Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you, Lord God. And we pray that you will help us to shine as very bright lights and win as many people as we can, as fast as we can, in every way we can. For surely you are near at the very door. In Jesus' name, amen. Give him a hand of praise tonight. Thank you, Lord.